Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. 300 PRC, the ultimate all-round rifle for African hunting? Maybe. And the 10mm handgun cartridge, did it really arise from the 30 Remington? We're going to try to find out on this episode of Ron Spomer Outdoors. Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining us. We've got, once again, lots of questions and answers from our fans. We're going to jump right in. This is uh, Paul, and Paul is a patron, so we communicate a fair amount. And Paul's latest letter to me was, hey, how's it going, Ron? I have gone over to the dark side. I bought myself a 308 lever action Browning BLR. Yeehaw! <laughs> but uh, 6.5 PRC, never. I think I know where Paul sits on this scale. Hey, I'm still wondering or I'm still waiting for the license for the 300 PRC. It is a six-month exercise here in South Africa to buy a rifle. So making the right choice is important. And I didn't even have to respond to Paul here because he was just giving me some information. But it points out something interesting, and I think most uh, citizens of the United States can really appreciate that. And that is that in our country, if you want to go out and buy a 300 PRC, go buy one. We don't have to wait for some government authority to give us permission. We have the Second Amendment, and man, is it a beauty. So let's hang on to that. But I do wish Paul some great luck in defeating the red tape over there where he lives in Africa and have good luck with that 300. He has judged of all the possibilities that he's got to go through all this hassle to get one. He doesn't want to get the wrong one. So I think he's done a lot of research to determine the 300 PRC is his idea of the ideal. And I don't think he's very much wrong on that. Um, for many, many years, the 300 Winchester Magnum has been considered just a fantastic all-around 
cartridge for African hunting, with the exception, of course, the really dangerous game. And that's mostly because of the laws that restrict you to having at least a 375 H&H or a 9.3 by 62 as your minimal. But there's plenty of, uh, well, probably elephants because they've been taken with 7 by 57 Mausers and even 6.5 man lickers. So the 300 Win Mag and anything similar is more than capable of it with the right bullet and the right shooter doing the job properly. But uh, thanks for uh, letting us know what you chose there, Paul, for your overall tool. And I'm sure you're going to be sharing some of your successes with it after six months of waiting. <laughs> we'll be uh, eager to hear from you and see how you're doing. Um, oh, I did too reply to Paul. Um, I told him about a friend of mine who has a, a Browning lever action rifle. The Browning lever action rifle is a different style completely from the uh, Winchesters and the Marlins and the Henrys. This is the modern style. It uses a ratchet system when you run that lever to drive the bolt back and forth with little kind of like little teeth underneath the uh, bolt. And that drives it in and out. So it's a little bit faster, perhaps. But the big deal is that it has a vertically stacked magazine underneath. So you get to use sharply tipped bullets. And then they're loading, obviously, the 308, the 243. They even have 7 rem mag in that BLR. So if you're looking for the fun and speed of a lever action, but you want the advantages of consider them modern boat tails and um, bottleneck cartridges, Try out that BLR from Browning because that's fully modern, shooting modern cartridges. And I mentioned to Paul that my buddy has been running a BLR in 22-250 Remington ever since the year, and I'm going way back to the mid-1980s, that I shot while hunting with him 13 coyotes, and we pelted them all out. And I don't know, they were probably bringing $30, $35 a piece in those days. And I said... Tom, I'm going to give these all to you on one condition. You use all of this money to buy a proper predator hunting rifle because he'd been using a 270 and tearing up the heights. So he got that uh, BLR. He's a lefty and he couldn't find a good left-handed action he liked in a bolt action. So he got the BLR in 22-250 and he has been using it ever since. And he has been piling up the fur because he is a serious fur trapper and coyote hunter. So that's uh, a little bit of... Chalk up a good win for the BLR. He really loves that rifle. All right, this is from Richard. Ron, thanks for the advice with the 300 Win Mag Copper Solids. In a previous letter to this patron, I had mentioned he might want to try this. So he said, I did load up some of those 168-grain Nosler E-tips with 65-grain of Hodgden 4350 powder flying at about 2,900 feet per second. At the muzzle. But at the whitetail, well, I took one with one of the rounds, and it never took a step. That is a plus in the terrain I hunt. I would send you a picture of the bullet, but I think it might still be traveling. <laughs> it is my first time using copper solids, and they did not disappoint. No Boone and Crockett deer, just a Frigidaire trophy. <laughs> By the way, nothing wrong with the groups that you shot from the bench in the 308 week. I would be happy with those groups, Richard. Al, thanks, Richard. I'm glad you had success with that. The Nosler E-tip is not the most popular or well-known copper bullet out there, but I have had some incredibly accurate performance out of those. I don't know that I've taken game with it, but I had a 280 Ackley improved Kimber 
bolt action rifle once. And I was just shooting some factory loads from Nosler with those ETEP bullets and getting close to half MOA groups out of it consistently. Pretty impressive stuff. So there's another copper bullet you might want to try out. All right, let's see. Um, this is not a patron, but it's Jessica or Jesse. Jesse says, I'm not a hunter, but I always been around it. And this video confirmed my thoughts on long range hunting. I'm not sure which video he's referring to here, folks. Not that there is anything wrong with it. Um, well, there can be, <laughs> but we won't go there just yet. I have done some hunting, but I am limited on experience on this whole subject. If I do get into hunting, I'm probably going to do small to medium game, uh, nothing that I can't manage. Uh, I don't want to get into a situation if I were to, for example, bring down an elk. What am I supposed to do with it? I don't know what to do. How am I going to manage it? Any advice is welcome. Thank you. Well, Jesse, um, this is good point that I think too few few people really consider until it's too late. You're standing out with, oh my gosh, I actually got one. Well, what do I do now? <laughs> We've all sort of been there, done that. Most of us uh, were fortunate to have mentors like our fathers and uncles and grandfathers and cousins, and we would get to watch and help and learn. But yeah, when you're starting out by yourself, how, what do you do? Just do some research. In this day and age, you know, it used to be go to your library or read your outdoor magazines, and eventually you'll find an article and a how-to thing. A lot of books out there in the old days that would show it with illustrations as well as describing it. But now you can get on Google and something and, and pick up a YouTube on, hey, this is how you gut a deer in the field, or this is how you take the meat off the bones. And it's all really fairly simple yeah, once you've tried it. But if you have to go out by yourself, what you need to do to prepare is get some adequate knives and make sure they are sharp. A sharp knife always helps. You don't want to be hacking away and shoving and pushing. You just want to zip it open with a really sharp knife. So get a good sharp knife and learn how to use it. You don't need a huge blade. Too many new hunters start off with this Bowie knife. And then they realize, I really didn't need a machete to open a deer. <laughs> I just need about a two and three quarter inch blade. So fairly small. Uh, you're just taking the skin and then a little bit uh, over the stomach. And then up to the rib cage, so you don't need a long, long knife. And then you're going to have to get a little messy when you reach up inside there and uh, cut some of the connecting tissue away so that all the innards come out. <laughs> but it, it just takes too long to describe it all. But get yourself that sharp knife or a couple. I always carry two, one a little bigger, one a little smaller. And then do that research and it really, once once you've done it once or twice, it's pretty pretty obvious what you need to do. And then you just get after it. And the more you do, the more efficient you become at the whole process, including taking the meat off the bones. And many times with big animals like elk, I don't gut or field dress those animals. I just immediately begin taking meat off. So as it's lying on the ground, I will skin the top away to expose the meat, the muscle groups, and then I'll follow the little lines. You can kind of see the lines where one clump of muscle meets up against another one and there's tissue in between the two so they can slide and function properly. And you can follow those lines. It doesn't take much cutting. A lot of it you can just pull apart. But that's a good way to get each muscle group off the bone. And then at some point you get down to the bone and you do need to cut away from the bone where it adheres to it. But you just start cutting away like that, take your time and watch what's going on. It's fairly simple to get the meat off of the bones, the ribs, the leg bones, the neck bones and everything. And it's a, uh, it's a lot of fun too. And you end up with some 
not only the maximum quantity of meat that you can take off of it, but you keep it clean and you can keep the quality way up there too. So that's really great. All right, what's this? This is uh, something from Cody. I always thought that it was a bit unnecessary to have a suppressor on a hunting rifle. Furthermore, it recently came to my attention that guys will use their suppressors to take a shot at a rock or whatever that is near the game and then use the dope from that shot to take a poke at the game. Yes, it's really happening. Your thoughts. Well, my first thought is what? <laughs> People shoot intentionally at a rock near the animal to judge how close they're coming to the rock before they launch one at the animal. That sounds kind of crazy, but hey, never put anything past everybody. <laughs> There's always somebody out there who's kind of pushing the envelope. But no, I had never heard of that. And I think it's kind of silly. Yes. But I do understand sort of where it's coming from. Because anytime you're out shooting at rocks, and this has gotten to be a fairly popular way to test your field shooting skills is to get out in some big, wild, open, safe country where you have permission to shoot into a hillside, usually down, or if the slope is really high, you're shooting into the hillside and you pick out a stone um, or a stump or something. But the stones, the rocks, they really work out well because you'll see a puff of dust from them and or hear the bullet smack pretty nicely. And it's a good way to guesstimate range or learn to use your range finder in conjunction with your reticle, your turret dialing, or whatever you're using for your system of aiming at more distant targets. And it really builds up your confidence as a shooter to, to hear the smack of that rock and see the, the dust erupt from it. But doing that intentionally to get an idea of your drops and deflections before you shoot at your animal, I don't know. I don't recommend that, guys. It just, uh, you get, let's say you get a ricochet and that piece of bullet goes up and wounds the animal or something. I think it's kind of a silly way to do it, guys. All right, let's hear from Jeffrey. Very well said about the long-range shooting and recovery. It must have been a previous broadcast where we covered that. I have used Onyx, that's that on, online or phone um, app system with all the great map information. Uh, there are, I don't know, two or three like that. Another one is Hunt Stand, and then I think another one was called Backcountry or something like that. At any rate, I think most of us are familiar with those. He says, I've used Onyx for the first time this year. Love the ability to put in compass mode and drop pins and waypoints. After my granddaughter shot across a canyon in New Mexico, I took a photo by myself, putting my cell camera on top of her rifle scope, greatly assisted in recovery. It was a youth hunt, and I did not want us to separate. So after about 30 to 45 minutes, we found the bull. My granddaughter is 13 years old and killed a public land 6 by 8 that net scored 373 and 75. Oh my goodness, that is a big bull elk. Was so great making the memories and sharing all the knowledge and skills on this hunt. By the way, she shot him from 250 yards off uh, using a stick for support on the morning of the last day of the hunt with a 7 millimeter Weatherby Magnum shooting 160 grain acubons at 3,200 feet per second. This for all you guys who are afraid of the recoil of a 7 rem mag. A 13-year-old girl got railed at 250 yards, and her granddad was smart enough to use that mapping system on his phone to recognize the area in which that thing fell so they couldn't lose it as it crossed that canyon. Great advice on how to an additional way to keep track of where that animal was when you shot. Really appreciate that, Jeffries. 
All right. This is from Bench. Bench says, hey, I have to correct you. The 30 Remington was the parent case for the 10 millimeter auto. I recently did a video on my regular channel on the uh, 10 millimeter cartridge and the Kimber Jaeger handgun that I have for it. Good little hunting setup. And I mentioned that it was the 10 millimeter was sort of a whole cloth cartridge. In other words, there was no parent cartridge. They said, let's design a cartridge and they called it the 10 millimeter. It's similar in diameter to the 30 Remington, but I think it's a little bit wider in the, at the base and as well in the, um, in the head, the rim diameter, a little bit wider. So I have never seen any indication that they copied it or used it for their initial parent case. And now if you're uh, wondering what size a 10 millimeter is, what sort of a hole it could make, there's one behind me. <laughs> this is our celebration of our 400,000 subscriber. We shot a 40 caliber hole in our plaque that we got from YouTube when we first got 100,000 subscribers. And we're really kind of proud of that. But that was the 10 millimeter. And my shooting that target is in that same video. So you might want to check out the 10 millimeter and learn all about it on that show. Really a surprisingly accurate um, handgun and round and, and surprising power. It's roughly the equivalent of a 357 Magnum. Um, but the 357 Mag, of course, is for revolvers. And this is for an auto loader but i i have not bench um i've not found that the 30 remington is credited with being the parent case they may have started with that but like i say i think the base of the 10 mm is a little bit wider now here's from joe um oh he's look must be looking at that same handgun video he said excited for the 10 millionth subscriber <laughs> yeah I, I don't think we're gonna last that long <laughs> 10 million subscribers i'd have to be some kind of a pop star or something um excited for the 10 million subscriber and the 10 inch gun you're going to shoot that with ouch <laughs> yeah yeah i think that's one i don't have to worry about but uh, appreciate the uh, support there joe <laughs> this is someone called papa's Ron, I am not criticizing, just pointing out to you, you keep changing the way you grip the gun. I would suggest you watch some YouTube videos on the proper way to grip a semi-auto handgun. I know you want to hunt honest and shoot straight. Oh, no, I have not been criticized for the way I grip the handguns yet, but that's probably because I have very often done a video in which I was shooting a handgun. But, um... All right. I, you know, I kind of learned, but maybe I'm inconsistent in the hold, but I did shoot a pretty nice group off of my knees. I'm kind of proud of that. So uh, I'll, I'll keep trying and learning. Appreciate it, guys. Keep hammering away at me. You might turn me into a shooter eventually. Here's somebody called Hard Rock. I've heard from Hard Rock before. He's pretty consistent. I appreciate that, Hard Rock. The difference in long range hunting is the plan. We shouldn't intentionally plan to have a final firing position that's extreme. If you get stuck due to circumstances and are forced to make a long shot, make your own decision. Hey, Ron, do you remember back when Monster Bucks kind of had their own legend? Maybe your friend or your uncle or neighbor had seen him last year, and you saw him the year before that, and et cetera, et cetera. And before this widespread use of trail cameras, now, these days, you can have photos of every animal moving on your property. Take some of the fun out of it for me. Any thoughts? Hey, good episode. <laughs> well, yeah, Hard, Hard Rock, the thoughts I have is, are pretty similar to yours on that very thing. It was always this delightful, wonderful mystery back in the day of what was out there. That was a big draw for me 
for hunting was what is out there, both the land, you know, I always imagined these incredibly wonderful, beautiful wilderness places that I would hunt with streams and lakes and, and pines and mountains and things that I didn't see in the cornfields of South Dakota where I grew up. And then, of course, the animals that would be out there, the giant elk and the moose and the big rat mule deer and white tails and all the rest of them. And that has that has remained one of the draws for me in hunting is always this in the back of my mind, what's out there? What new thing am I going to see this time? And then there's always that little germ of it could happen to me. That 30 point buck could actually show up in front of me when I'm hunting. And then when you've got photographs day after day of every deer that moves across your property and Yes, I realize that during the rut, bucks from elsewhere can suddenly show up. So there's a little bit of that left. But still, when when everybody not only has all the images of all these bucks as they're growing from spring through the summer, they know everything about them and what time they come past a certain spot where the camera is. Then they give them names. I just don't tumble to that whole thing. I don't want to go out and hunt some some deer that I've watched grow up from a fawn and I've given him a name. I'm sorry. I understand a lot of people do this and there's a certain satisfaction in finally getting that big buck you know has been out there. But for me, I think I'm with you, Hard Rock. I like that mystery, the the mystery of the undiscovered and undisclosed until it suddenly happens and it's just magical. So I'm going to stick with that. Now you had something else in here. I've forgotten what it was. Let's go back. Something about long range shooting are forced to make a long shot. What I want to say about that hard rock is that I do not believe that anyone gets forced into making a long shot. It's always a decision of ours to shoot or not. So you don't have to think, well, I I paid $400 for this license and I spend a week out here and all the travel and the gas and oh my gosh, and it's the last day and this is my last chance. I'm going to have to launch one. I think that just happens all too often, but we should not be thinking that way. It's just not fair because then we start to take those risky long shots. So think about that, guys. If you're not going to take what you consider to be a risky long range shot on the first day, why should you take it on the last? It's still a risky shot you don't have to take. You can eat the tag. (laughs) I don't know. That's going to fall on some deaf ears, perhaps, but it's my best effort. I've turned down some pretty nice deer over the years because it was just a little beyond my ability. Um, I can't pretend to be a saint on this one because I have taken a few shots that I wasn't 100% sure I was going to make, but I felt pretty confident (laughs) and I made them and I went, but I'm not going to try that again. So (laughs) try, try to do as best you can guys. It's uh, just human nature to want to try to try something that you probably shouldn't, but Stick to your guns on these ethics if you can. It's a challenge, but it's worth it. Okay, let's see. That looks like all of the questions we had printed out. But, of course, the team has pulled some up on the computer for me. And if I can get this thing fired up, we're going to see what they've got here. They have someone from Texas named Joshua who's asking a real quick question. Hey, Ron, what do you think of the 270 WSM? (laughs) Well, I think it is an outstanding 27 caliber. The the .277 bullets that it shoots are the same ones as the famous 270 Winchester, but it throws those bullets about 200, maybe even 300 feet per second faster than the 270. So it's right on the heels 
of the 270 Weatherby Magnum, but it's in a short action. You got a short fat cartridge. I'm not real crazy about the fat cartridges. You, you lose around in the magazines because they're much fatter. I've never felt like I needed a lot of magazine capacity. Three cartridges down is plenty. And that's what you usually get with it. But with the 270, as slim as it is in some traditional rifles like the Model 70, you could probably get five down and then one in the chamber. I almost never carry in the chamber. I'm out hunting and I might walk and look and glass for, for hours before I see a deer that I want to shoot. And then I usually see it and identify it and stock it. And I have plenty of time to chamber around. And even if I see a deer fairly quickly, surprisingly, and close, it doesn't take but a split second to go, and you've got a round chamber. So to be safe, I don't carry around in the chamber. That means I've only got three in my magazine. And that's one of the downsides of the WSM if you think I might need more than three shots to get this job done. But if you're a careful shooter and you choose your shots, it shouldn't be a concern at all. So, yeah, I think the 270 WSM is a great cartridge. Now, the 6.8 Western is just a slightly shortened version of it that's been set up to handle the longer high BC bullets. The I wouldn't say a mistake that they made, but what sets the 270 WSM back a little bit from the modern cartridges is that it came out just before all of the laser range-finding devices were there to tell you exactly how far something was away. So then you could calculate your drops and then use a long high BC bullet to minimize wind deflection and drop your shots right where you needed them at longer ranges. Prior to that, velocity was the king. We didn't care so much about the wind deflection because we didn't know how far the animal was away. So if you can add another 50 yards of reach to that cartridge, to the bullet, before it dropped below your target, you were ahead. That was the benefit. And that's where the 270 WSM was set up, same way as the old Magnums from back in the 60s. The 300 Win Mag, 7 Rem Mag, 264 Win Mag, and all the rest of them. We wanted that extra reach. Now we can figure out the drop, so we just want less wind deflection. So we got the longer bullets. Not going to get that in the 270 WSM, but you will in the 6.8. It's a little bit slower, but you've got that wind deflection advantage. But hey, if you pick up a 270 WSM and you get your sleekest high BC 150 grain bullets, you're going to be stepping right on the heels of the 6.8 with its really long, heavier, but slower high BC bullets. So you're going to do beautifully with either one of them. All right, David from, I think, Minnesota. Hi, Ron. I've watched a lot of your videos on different guns and cartridges, etc. But what I haven't seen is the proper technique and products you use. I'm not sure which proper technique you're asking for here, Dave. Let's keep reading. I had a friend who is really big into shooting bench and hunting. He taught me to properly break in a gun and clean it. So he uses Key Oil, K-E-O-I-L, and GM Top Engine Cleaner. But I never knew his formula, so I would greatly appreciate your help on cleaning my bore and bolt, etc. after a day at the range. Thanks. Well, this is kind of all over here, Dave. So at, at the end here, you asked me about cleaning your, your bore and your friend was using some engine cleaner stuff. And I've heard of a lot of guys doing that. I did. I read a good report one time about, it may have been a chemist who had analyzed a bunch of solvents for bore, bore solvents for rifles and shotguns, cleaning out your bore, mostly getting the carbon out. 
And he analyzed them all and found out that the ingredient that was doing all of the important work was essentially brake cleaner. And he could use brake cleaner and get just as clean. And it was a lot less expensive. So I don't remember what the chemical was in that. But there are all sorts of solvents out there from various manufacturers of gun cleaning solvents. And they're usually sold as carbon remover, which is the big one, and then copper remover. Copper remover is getting a little bit unpopular now as people are figuring out a layer of copper in your bore. If it's the same bullet time after time for consistency, that layer of copper smooths things out and does not build up and screw up your shooting and ruin your accuracy as much as we used to think. Um, and scrubbing down to the bare steel every time means you have to lay down several shots before you get the same performance you were getting before when you had the copper fouling in your barrel. I have not done exhaustive double blind tests or anything on this stuff, but I have found that if I clean out the carbon from my barrel and don't worry so much about the copper anymore, they seem to shoot quite accurately for a long, long time. Obviously, if you're shooting and your gun suddenly goes from a consistent MOA production to two MOA, you've got a problem. You probably need to clean that barrel. If you're not losing accuracy, I always say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If the barrel is still accurate, who cares how much copper fouling, even carbon fouling is still in it. I don't clean after every bench session. I don't clean after every hunt other than rust prevention. So you want to take care of things that way. But the bore, man, as long as it's delivering bullets right where it should in consistent group sizes, I'm leaving it alone. But when I do clean, I will try all kinds of solvents because I get lots of them. Hey, Ron, here's our latest, newest, greatest solvent. It's 20 times better than the last one. I have not found that any one of them is just like, wow, stand out from the crowd. They all work to varying degrees. Um, again, I've never done a, a double blind study where I can say, well, this one was definitely the winner by 10% or 20% faster or something like that. One thing I do know, if I really want to get a barrel clean in a hurry after a few passes with the solvents and the brushes and all this work, if I put some JB bore compound on my brush and I run that through about 10 passes, that scrapes things off in a hurry. This stuff has kind of got pumice in a, in a paste. And this pumice is kind of like, they say it's as gentle as jeweler's rouge for polishing diamonds and sapphires and stuff. So it doesn't hurt your barrel. And bench rest shooters will use it. I've been using that for years now. And man, when it's time to get a barrel clean, if I put JB compound on there, it gets it clean in a hurry. Then I follow it up with some other solvents to clean all that out. Usually put in a little um, rubbing alcohol to flush everything out, get all the other chemicals out, and then dry that thoroughly, and then give it a light coating of oil, never grease, too heavy, plugs up the barrel, makes uh, for more uh, drag on your bullet and your pressures go up. But just use a really light oil, light coat of it, just enough to prevent rust. That is what I do. So I hope that was some of the information you were looking for. Um, if not, hey, right back, we'll hack at it again. <laughs> we'll get it right one of these times. All right. Um, who's next? Spotting scope. Hmm. Ron, I enjoy all your videos. Thanks. I really need a good spotting scope with a mill reticle. Ah, 
Yeah, he wants to call impacts at long range. So he's doing some long range target shooting. If your spotting scope has a reticle in it with mill or MOA or whatever hash lines you want to match your rifle scope, you can really help tell folks who you're shooting. Your buddy's on a spotting scope, but he says, yeah, give me two mills to the left uh, to compensate for your wind deflection or something. You do the same thing with your scope and bingo, you're right on. Um, so this is what this gentleman is looking for. So his question is, which scope wins out between the Vortex Razor and the Tract Toric spotting scopes? Thanks. Boy, William, I cannot give you the answer to that because I have not tested one against the other. I have tested the Tract Toric spotting scope and found it to be really, really good quality optically and mechanically as well. It's just, it's just one of those well-built scopes. I tested it against several others at the upper end of the scale on quality and price and found it to be right there with them. But I haven't tested the Vortex Razor. I'm sorry. A Vortex is a real popular brand. They make a series of scopes and binoculars and spotting scopes from affordable and then on up to scale. So you get a little more quality every time you go up. I'm not sure where the Razor fits into that. So I'm sorry, I can't give you an, an impartial, this one did something better than the other one. But I can tell anyone who is looking for a spotting scope to A, get the biggest objective you can or want to carry around because of course that lets more light in. And lighting coming in is important when you're cranking that eyepiece up to 60 power. You go from 20 or 25, usually up to 60, sometimes even 70. You crank that thing up and the exit pupil, that's a little circle of light that comes out of the eyepiece. That's all the light that's going to get into your eye. That thing gets teeny tiny because you take the objective diameter and you divide it by the power. And if you've got, say in the old days, we had 65 mm objectives on our spotting scopes, you crank your eyepiece up to 60 and you're getting a 0.5 inch diameter little peaky hole that you're getting light into your eye through things got really dark and you run those numbers up to a, an 80 millimeter or even a 90 95 millimeter objective holy miracle that thing's huge but you turn your power up to 60 and suddenly that's not such a big exit people coming out 90 divided by 60 God, you don't even have two you got about a 1.3 millimeters for your exit pupil that's a tiny little hole so in addition to that, what you really want is the finest multi-coatings, anti-reflection multi-coatings. That is what allows most of the light to get through each stack of glass. Every glass lens wants to bounce off light, reflect it like a mirror or a window when you walk by. You're going to lose about 4% of the light at each one of those. But if you put anti-reflection coatings on them and the right ones and enough of them, you can increase the light going through the glass without bouncing off significantly. That's what makes for a bright scope. So you want to consider those things when you're looking. Thanks, Charles. Sorry, I couldn't give you an absolute on that one, but those are always tough when you compare one to the other. No, wait a minute. That wasn't Charles. That was William. Sorry. Charles is from Prince Edward Island, Canada. And he says, the Canada's smallest province We'll take your word for it. I've never been over there, Charles. I've gotten fairly close, but never got onto Prince Edward Island. Let's see what Charles has to say. Ron, I've gained a great deal of ballistics knowledge from your podcast, and I look forward to every episode. Well, thanks. Appreciate that. 
You have mentioned so many cartridges that were developed in and around the turn of the century, and I got to wondering, how did the wildcatters and developers of these cartridges measure feet per second or bullet velocities before the dawning of the sophisticated equipment we now have access to, chronographs? Okay, good question, Charles. They had uh, at least two techniques that I know of. One of them was measured impact moving a, a weight, a given weight. So they would hang a lead weight or something and shoot it, and it would get pushed back by the bullet's impact. And they figured all the math out to know based on the weight of the bullet and how much the plate weighed and how far it got moved back, and they did all the math on it. They could determine the velocity when it launched or at least the velocity when it got there. The other one was a kind of cool idea. You take a, a long axle and you put a disc or a wheel on each end of it and you mark it so it's exactly the same, like 360 degrees all the way around on both of those. And you shoot through it while it's spinning at a given speed. You know the speed of the spin and you shoot the wheel. The bullet goes through. Well, by the time the bullet gets down to that other wheel, your degree has moved. You're no longer going to be hitting it at the same spot. And they would measure the distances between those two and then do the math again and come up with the speed the bullet was going when it zipped through there. Whew, glad I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> I like to just throw on the chronograph and have the electricity and the little computer inside do all of that stuff for me. And now we've got these Doppler radar deals that are really cool. They actually measure the bullet going down range. And you get not only muzzle velocity, but I think velocities at different distances down range. I haven't worked with one of those yet, but I'm getting real close to picking one up. Because just the other day, my visual chronograph, the kind we usually use, we have light traps in them. They see the bullet pass the first trap, and that starts the clock. And then the bullet passes the second trap and stops the clock. And then it does all the math for you. Mine failed the other day. It just wouldn't read a bullet anymore. So sometimes the bullet's too shiny and you can play around with it and get it to work. But I've tried five different shots over it since then and it's still not working. So I'll play with it a little bit more, but I think I better look into one of those Doppler systems. All right, Ray from Minnesota. Ron, why do regulators give buckshot such a bad rap for deer hunting? Because <laughs> it deserves it. <laughs> Ooh, I better keep reading before I say that. With the new tungsten loads, they should be very effective. Yeah, that'll help. Tungsten's more dense than lead. Especially in areas where stray bullets are a concern. Less extreme range. Less chance for ricochet. Very effective with the trauma induced by multiple strikes. Safer and more effective. What's not to like? Hmm. I can tell you, Ray, what's not to like. They're not as safe as we might think. Most of us think just like you, it's like it's a shotgun, it's not going to go very far. Well, you got to consider the diameter and weight of these projectiles. Now, I don't have the hard information on the tungsten, but I've studied some lead buckshot. Number four buck is 24 caliber, so it's like shooting a 243. But you're only going at around 1,300 feet per second. So each pellet or each bullet is only carrying about 100, maybe 130 foot-pounds of energy. If you shot a deer with a 243, the bullet was only carrying 130 foot-pounds of energy, you'd get laughed out of camp. That's way too puny and weak. So you're saying, yeah, but there's way more pellets in there. No, that little number four buckshot, I think you get about 50 pellets inside. And they're going to be losing energy very quickly downrange. You know, that was 130 at the muzzle. Imagine what it's like at 40 yards. 
And most of these buckshot loads won't pattern effectively beyond about 30, 35 yards. Because what starts to happen, instead of hitting an 8-inch, 10-inch vital chest zone, suddenly you're putting quite a few pellets into the, into the guts. So you've paunch shot your animal, one up in the neck in the muscle somewhere that didn't do anything. And it's just too easy to put wounding shots onto an animal with these things. Now you step up to the bigger, like double ot buck. I think that's the largest size. And that's around 30 to 33 in caliber. So it's about a 33 caliber. So yeah, you're taking three, 338 uh, Federal, a 338 Win Mag, but... These little round pellets don't weigh all that much despite being 30, a third of an inch across. And they're only carrying maybe 150 foot pounds of energy. Maybe they'll go up to 200 at the muzzle or something. But once again, it's a round. It doesn't have a high BC, so it loses a lot of energy. And same thing. Only now you've got fewer pellets, even though they're larger diameter. Most two and three quarter inch loads, I think, hold about nine or 10 of these pellets. And I think I've seen them with as many as 12. But think about that on a deer, nine, 10, let's do an average of 10. 10 pellets going down range and your pattern opens and opens and opens. Once again, you're poking holes where they don't belong and you're not necessarily killing the deer. Finally, those pellets carry enough energy to penetrate skin at something like 400 yards. And they've been registered to be lethal at at least 300 yards. So it's not as safe as it might first seem. Plus, with one rifle bullet, you can pretty much direct where it's going. With a spread of a shotgun load, you're going to get some pellets that are climbing and climbing and climbing and then falling down out there at a spread. So you really are not controlling within that 300 yards of lethal range where those things are landing. So I think I question all of the all traditional positions on this buckshot. I just... I think if you're hunting and taking shots at 30 yards, maybe 35 at the max, if you can stay within that and then you're in some pretty thick country where you've got a lot of brush that are going to absorb those pellets at 50 yards or beyond a little bit, yeah, you're probably real safe right there. But I think that's kind of the limit and that's why they're not all that popular. That's my take on it anyway. All right. Thanks for those, Ray. Got us thinking. This is Peter from Missouri. Oh, no. Peter's asking about Coriolis. <laughs> we're not going to go to Coriolis effect, guys. Hey, I think that's it for today, then. If we're not going to dive into Coriolis, we're going to leave happy. <laughs> ah, tip of the week. A lot of guys are deer hunting now. It is the season, and they're carrying their scopes, and I'll bet at least half of them are carrying their scopes at the wrong magnification. <laughs> How many times have you pulled your rifle up and gone, oh, my gosh, I'm up here at 12X or 18X or even 10X? If you're hiking and a deer, deer suddenly gives you a shot, he's probably going to be pretty close, right? And you don't have time to do much of anything but get your rifle on him and shoot. Keep your scope dialed down to the lowest power or somewhere near that, like 4X. I find 4X is plenty low enough for me to get deer in, even at 20 yards. And then if the deer suddenly steps up from behind a tree and gives you a quick shot, all you have to do is raise up and shoot. If you got it on 12 power, then you're going to see a bunch of hair and go, oh my gosh, where's his chest? Where's his butt? I don't know where I'm aiming. So keep your scope set low. And then when that deer shows up out at a distance where you need magnification, he's not likely to see you dial up. And he's probably completely unaware you're there. You'll have plenty of time to dial up later. That's the tip of the week. This is Ron Spomer. Thanks for joining me. Hunt honest and shoot straight.